Well, you know, it's interesting that in different cultures that there are things that are considered taboo. And I wanted to share just a, a couple examples. In Thailand and in Arab countries, you're never to point your shoe or your foot towards someone else because the shoe and the foot are considered the filthy part of the body. In many African countries, when talking to a tribal chief, make sure that your head is not above his head. That's how we show respect in African countries. If you are a man, you shouldn't try to shake hands with an orthodox Muslim woman. In Japan, don't point with your chopsticks. Is that true? Uh, or in any, is, is pointing with your chopsticks? Is that considered taboo or rude to do that? Okay. Never eat while standing in Indonesia. Interesting. Never chew gum in public in Austria, Italy, Germany, or Malaysia. In India and many other countries, it's considered taboo to eat food with your left hand. Don't cut your grass on Sunday in Switzerland. Don't walk into an Asian home with your shoes on. And all God's people said, Amen. <laughs> Don't bring wine as a gift if you're ever visiting France. In Germany and the United Kingdom, it is frowned upon to spit in public. Isn't that taboo in every culture? Right? At least when people are watching. Right? It should be if it's not. Don't give an even number of roses as a gift for a romantic occasion in Russia. Okay? They're actually, um, when you give flowers at funerals, you give them in an even number. And when you give them to show love, it's actually an odd number. Had Victoria's mom and dad explain that one to me yesterday, which was pretty cool. Don't stretch or yawn in public in Spain. It's considered extremely vulgar. Certainly, there are many different things that we should be sensitive to cross-culturally. And my reason for sharing all of these is because today's sermon is actually going to talk about sexual purity. And in many cultures, talking about anything sexual or purity or even immorality is considered taboo. It's my desire to be sensitive as we consider what God's Word has for us today. And I wanted you guys to know that I thought about every single word that I would share in this sermon, considering the sensitive nature of the topic. But I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to start reading in verse 18 from the English Standard Version, which says this. Verse 18 of chapter 6, 1 Corinthians. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The title of today's sermon is Protecting Your Purity. And it's my prayer and hope that as we study this passage together, 
that we'll be able to see the very practical and protecting effect that the Lord provides for us. Our passage contains three verses, and you can see in the bulletin that our outline contains three points. And we're going to study three preparations to protect your sexual purity at all times. Three preparations that you can make so that your sexual purity is guarded, protected at all times. And before we get started, we need some context to understand the reality of what was taking place in Corinth. The Corinthian Christians lived in a city that was synonymous with gross immorality. In fact, the word uh, Corinthianize meant to live in a state of drunkenness and sexual immorality. The Corinthian Christians found themselves immersed in this lifestyle. And Corinth, in many ways, would have made Las Vegas, otherwise known as Sin City, right? It would have made it look pretty angelic. Many of the Corinthian believers assumed that since they were saved, it was all right to continue living life as they did before. They did not look at their sin as anything serious, nor did they see the need to address it. And the Corinthian believers, they didn't have access to a completed New Testament the same way that we do today. They didn't have Hebrews 10.26 that says that if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. Proving ourselves as unbelievers. They didn't have access to 2 Peter uh, chapter 2 warning them led uh, warning them not to be led astray and countless other passages that would have helped them in the new testament not that that's an excuse for them but they were a new church and so it was hard for corinthian christians not to act or be influenced by their neighbors and as a result the corinthians were carrying their former ungodly lifestyle right into the church And so Paul writes this letter of 1 Corinthians, and it's really a letter of correction, and that's its theme. And it addresses certain problems that the church was having. In chapters 1-4, through Paul addresses division in the church. And people of the church were starting to find their identity in men rather than in Christ. And they were saying things like, I am of Apollos, or I am of Paul, or I am of Cephas. And they're finding their identity with those people rather than affirming their identity in Christ. It was a real problem, and Paul had to address it. In chapter 5, Paul dealt with the evil of failing to discipline blatant sin. And the sin was incest. And ironically, Roman law had a very strong stance against that sin. Yet, They were doing nothing about it inside the church. They were showing tolerance for it. And so Paul had to address that. And so the Lord's using the Apostle Paul to confront a host of Corinthian transgressions in the opening six chapters. Disunity, lawsuits, residue of other sins that he lists for us in chapter 6. In verses 9 and 10, there's a bunch of them listed there. Fornication, idolatry, homosexuality, theft, drunkenness, reviling. All these are previously mentioned sins before Paul zeroes in on the specific sin of sexual immorality. 
And because the Corinthian believers were so sexually immoral before they came to Christ, they carried a residue of this straight into their Christian experience. For example, Corinthians saw no harm in visiting the temple prostitutes. There were over a thousand of them. A thousand at the temple of Aphrodite where fornication occurred regularly. Disgusting. And the Lord guided Paul to deal specifically now with this sin by taking apart their rationalization for thinking that it was all right to practice it. So, this is the context which we find our passage in today. And we're going to look at three preparations that God's Word gives us that the Apostle Paul was inspired to record for the Corinthian believers as well that would protect their purity at all times. Again, you have the outline. And we're going to go ahead and start with our first preparation to protect our purity at all times, and it's this. Prepare to run. Verse 18 says, flee from sexual immorality. The command to flee here can also be translated, flee away. Seek safety by flight or escape. And it reflects the connotation of avoiding danger. And the word flee is actually, the Greek word is fuego. And it's where we get our English word fugitive. It's to take flight, to move quickly from a point or an area in order to avoid presumed danger or difficulty. To run away. To seek the safety by flight. To run or move hastily from the danger. It's saying flee specifically sexual immorality. Don't entertain sexual lust or rationalize them. Don't negotiate with them or try to challenge or endure them. One commentator had this to say about sexual lust. Don't flirt with it. Don't stand there and pray about what to do. Don't get near it. If it comes knocking, run for your life. This is what it means to flee. And the call to flee is really our picture of repentance. This is a picture of divine enablement and what God does in the heart of a person when they're born again. He gives them a a heart to turn from the lustful pursuits and the evil pursuits of the heart and to turn and obey Him by glorifying Him and living for Him and all that He commands. And obedience to the command to flee involves being prepared to run from sexual immorality at all times. And there's a reason that this is voiced by the Apostle Paul so strongly in our passage. And if we look at the previous three verses, going back to verse 15, it says this, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ, or united with Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Paul uses this expression often when he writes in the epistles, when he's trying to set it up. It's the strongest um, way to oppose something in the Greek, and it's sometimes translated, may it never be! Verse 16 continues, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. God uses Paul to 
Help us see that our union with Christ spiritually even goes beyond the physical union in marriage. Our physical union in marriage is earthly. It's temporal. But our union with Christ is eternal. Just as a sexual relationship between a man and a woman constitutes a union, a union that should never be violated and preserved at all costs between a husband and a wife, so Christians guilty of sexual immorality violate their spiritual union with Christ as well. And Paul wants us to see that. One commentator put it this way, as believers, we are engaged to the Lord Jesus Christ. We belong to Him and are bound to Him in a union that is stronger and more lasting than marriage. And as we'll see in our passage, God is glorified when our physical union in marriage is kept pure. And if you're single here today and you're not married yet, God is equally glorified when you preserve your purity, when you honor and give yourself to Him and preserve yourself for the one that He will have you marry. He's also glorified when our spiritual union with Him is put on display through a consistent testimony. And this is what enables us to have sweet fellowship with Him spiritually. And there are two biblical examples that I want us to look at. And so you'll need your Bibles, and we're going to look at a few different Scriptures. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 39. Real quickly. Genesis 39. And we're going to talk about the example of Joseph. We're going to start in verse 6 of Genesis 39, and it says this, So he, and we're talking about Potiphar, the Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, who had taken Joseph in, or really he was purchased as a slave. He left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Joseph had such a life of integrity that he entrusted everything into his care. And it says this about Joseph. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. He was a good-looking guy. And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me, sleep with me, is what this is saying. But he refused, and he said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he did not listen to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Sleep with me. And he left his garment in her hand, and he fled, and he went outside. Okay? Now I want you to turn real quickly to Second uh, Samuel. Just um, start turning towards the back of your Bible. Second Samuel chapter 11, and I want us to see another account. And this time, David is going to serve as our example in 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. 
And it says this, Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David rose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a beautiful woman bathing. She was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent out and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And I have a question for you, church. What is the difference between these two men? What's the difference? One engaged in sexual immorality and the other one did not. We see that. But God would have us see the reason why these men both had different results and it's pretty simple to see. One was prepared to flee and the other was not. Joseph focused on his potential sin against God and ultimately in his heart and in his mind, he prepared that he was out of there. He was gone. While David focused on his own lust and was held captive to his sin and then paid the price. And I wish we had more time to track the consequences from this point forward in both of these men's lives. But Joseph, things actually even got harder for Joseph because he ended up being confined in prison, yet the Lord was with him and was honored by the decision that he made and blessed him while David faced major, major heartache due to the consequences that came from his sexual sin. Even to the point that Bathsheba had she conceived. And that baby died. The Greek word translated sexual immorality is porneia. And it's where we get our English word pornography. And it includes, but it's not limited to, adultery, premarital sex, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, and prostitution. And as an aside, porneia refers primarily to the sins of the flesh, but those sins can never be divorced from the sin of the heart because all sin is related. Sin in one area always makes us more susceptible to sin in other areas. One commentator expressed it this way, porneia is an all-encompassing sensual or sexual immorality, a perfect description of modern-day America. Let's be honest. Most men, some Christian men, have problems with this area that they would not dare tell anyone. When you realize that you are complete in Christ and can now say no to this sin, from that point on, you are responsible for what kind of mess you get yourself into. And remember, the best way, the biblical way of saying no to sin is by saying yes to Christ. Victory in the spiritual life is not so much 
me overcoming the problem, but it's me being so overcome by Christ that now Christ in me enables me to overcome the strong temptation to sin. You don't have to live the way you once did when you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Your body is now dead to sin, the power of sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is powerful. And that is right on point. And later in this letter, God uses Paul to record one of the most profound verses in all of Scripture. And I want us to turn there together to 1 Corinthians, just a couple chapters back, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If we could read this together. 1 Corinthians 10.13 God wants us to see this. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. At the heart of this verse, it says something that we cannot miss. God is faithful. You know what's staggering to think about? I remember the first time after when the Lord allowed and blessed my understanding to to understand what this verse was saying, that every time that I had sinned, every time that I had sinned in my past, that God in His faithfulness provided a way of escape. God in His faithfulness opens up a door and provides a way of escape. Listen, if the building were on fire right now, we'd need to get out. We'd need a door, right? It'd be foolishness to stay in it. We got to get out. And what this verse tells us is so significant is the reality is that we are in a world that is burning. We are in a world that is filled with lust. We are in a world that is constantly throwing sexual temptations week after week, day after day, television, music, movies, everything. It's just woven deeply into the fabric and it's an, it's an inferno. It's an, a blazing fire. And yet God says this through this verse that with me, With me, when you are with me, guess what? I will provide a door. I will always provide you with a way of escape. How much does God love every believer? That he would do that for each and every one of us. Each and every one of us with every single temptation or every sin that we might be confronted with in our walk. It's powerful. And not only does He give us the way of escape, He gives us His Word to kill the evil lusts of our heart that wage war against the Holy Spirit's work. It's a powerful verse. Well, we got to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18 because the verse finishes with a very intriguing statement. And it says this, Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral man 
sins against his own body. What's Paul saying? What Paul's saying is that the person who gets caught up in sexual sin is sinning or corrupting their own body. And the physical effects that it can have can be damaging for life. And it's no secret that sexually transmitted diseases can have a terrible effect on the flesh. And you you can only imagine what this might have looked like in Paul's day. There were no pharmacies. There were no places going in to check in to get an antibiotic. There weren't things to... There were, I'm sure that there were some attempts that were made. So it was rampant. It was everywhere. And we've learned now, too, just through our medical understanding that there's even life-threatening consequences as a result of sexual immorality. It's true. And sexual sin is a betrayal of our health. It's a betrayal to the well-being of our body. And Paul isn't saying that no other sin has physical implications. Other sins may be with and by means of the body or may injure the body, but none are so directly against the sanctity of the whole bodily being as sexual immorality. Targets children younger and younger. And those of you who have been watching the news recently, you saw the YouTube video of that girl who noticed that one of her junior high basketball coaches that had molested her was now the assistant principal at a school and even had more power over kids. And she video, video herself calling this person on the phone and saying, do you know what you did to me? Do you know what you did to me? And the person confessed. They said, I know, I know. I'm wrong. I was wrong. She captured it on video. Years later, after this experience, you could still hear the heartache in her voice as she confronted this molester over the phone. You could hear the pain. And sexual immorality shattered this little girl's world. And ultimately, it destroyed the career of the offender who pursued the wicked lust of their heart. I have news for you. Sexual immorality is after every person in this room. It wants to destroy every marriage in this room. It wants to destroy the purity of every young single adult in this room. It does not discriminate. It does not discriminate. Is your heart prepared to flee? Are you set to run from the temptations that are inviting you to stop and dwell on sexual sin? You have to answer that question. We're studying three preparations to protect our sexual purity at all times. Verse 18 instructs us that we need to be prepared to run from sexual immorality. The second preparation to protect your sexual purity is this. Prepare to remember. Verse 19 says this, 
Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And over the course of this chapter, Paul has asked six questions that have come in the form of do you not know? It starts back in verse 2, and then verse 3, then verse 9, verse 15, verse 16, which we already took a look at, and now the final question here of verse, or chapter 6, verse 19. And the repeated question, do you not know, implies that these were certain subjects that the Corinthians probably were well acquainted with because Paul had instructed them with the answers when he was their pastor and teacher. And Paul asked this question to point to the fact that a Christian's body is from God. It belongs to God. And it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. And any and every act of sexual sin that a believer commits is committed in the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, where God dwells and where Christ abides. Think about that. We need to prepare ourselves to remember this and be equipped with this awesome reality that God is spiritually present within every one of us who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question in verse 19 begins by asking whether we know or could say understand or do you perceive in your mind before God's Word reveals something absolutely profound. When the Bible has talked about temples, there's three temples, three true temples that exist in the Scriptures. One was the uh, temple of the Old Testament, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, a material temple that was set up as a, a place of worship where God would dwell, okay, and marked a place for worship for the nation of Israel. The second temple was the Lord making a reference to himself. And, and in John 2.19, he says, destroy this temple, and what? I will raise it up again, right? And then the third expression is found right here in our passage today. And the temple, my friends, is us. It's you. God's presence is with you. The indwelling Holy Spirit lives within us. And every time that we engage a sin, we're grieving God. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And this is a verse that we referred to in an earlier sermon in the month. Ephesians 4.30. We talked about this, but it's so appropriate for this message as well. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When we sin, God would have us know that it causes Him grief, that it causes Him sorrow, that it, it breaks His heart that we would engage in sin. And what's so interesting is that even in the context of this letter, if we just go a few verses down to, to the next chapter in Ephesians 5, we get right over to Ephesians 5.3 that says this, but sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. It's not that you would even do it. 
It's just that it would even be talked about amongst you. That it would even be associated with us. That's powerful. It goes on to say that there be no filthiness. This is really talking about sexual talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting. In verse 5, it goes on, For this you know with certainty that no sexually immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Anyone who practices sexual immorality is an unbeliever. That's the reality that we see that God would have us know. So to protect our purity, God wants us to prepare to remember that His Holy Spirit dwells within. It does. You know, Proverbs 26, you know, Your, your, your past, I mean, and for those who are, were saved later in life, and, and you, you know what this world throws at you. You know the game. You know, you know the, the sexual immorality game, right? All the temptation. All the, the ways of the world. All the, the disgust from the world. That you would be in high school and you would let people know that you're a virgin? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You haven't had sex with anyone yet? Are you kidding me? Yeah, the world. And you know what? And they, they, they don't talk about the consequences of all the, the immorality and, and all the, 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 the vomit that comes along with it. And you know what Proverbs 26.11 says, right? It says, you know... Um, like a dog that returns to its vomit, so is the fool who returns to the things that you are saved from. So is the fool who returns to his folly. Those things that we are pulled out from. God purchased us for purity and He wants us to be prepared to remember that in our minds. 1 Corinthians 6.19 shares something else of significance that God wants us to remember. If you'll turn back there to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, it goes on and it asks the question, or it says the statement, and depending on which translation, yours might be in question form in the NASB, or it says the, the statement in the ESV, you are not your own. What a humbling statement. What is God saying? I think I shared this from last week's sermon from a different, different passage when we were talking about the sealing of the Holy Spirit when God offers forgiveness to us. He, says, he said what? He says, you are mine. You belong to me. You're mine. You're sealed. In First. In, in, in 1 Corinthians 6.19, God basically says the same thing all over again when He says, you are not your own. Another way for God to say you are not your own is to say you belong to Me. And when we prepare by remembering, this allows us to see that we don't have the freedom to do whatever we want. We don't have God's permission, our rightful and holy owner's permission to engage in any degree of sexual immorality 
just as Ephesians 5.3 indicates. Not even a hint. And the fact that we have God's Holy Spirit dwelling within us, just that fact alone that God's presence in with us is enough divine truth for us to... to, to, We don't need any more than that, right? That's enough. But one commentator expressed it this way. This is powerful. To commit sexual sin in a church auditorium disgusting as that would be, would be no worse than committing the sin anywhere else. The offense is made within God's sanctuary wherever and whenever sexual immorality is committed by believers. We are His sanctuaries. And God wants us to remember this. We're looking at three preparations to protect our sexual purity at all times. Verse 18 prepares us to run. Verse 19 prepared us to remember. And our third and final verse prepares us to reflect. Verse 20 says this, For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Our verse begins with for you, and it's actually in the plural here, And if the Apostle Paul had been from North Carolina, he would have employed all y'all. Okay, That's how how it would have come out. And and it's one of the limitations of the English language is we don't see the plural aspect in the Scripture. You just looks like you. It could be a group of people. It could be one person. But here it's talking to all y'all were bought at a price. And this verse continues to reflect on the fact that the Corinthian Christians needed to know that they were bought, or your Bible translation might say purchased. We have all been bought or purchased by the Lord. And all of us, when we just think about this practically, we've all been to a store, and maybe some of the young people haven't done it on their own yet, but we've purchased things. If I were to ask you to recall all the things that you've purchased over the course of your your life, it would be impossible, and I'm not asking you to do that. But I'm asking you to consider what happens when you go and pay for something. You assume possession of it. You take ownership of it. Legally, by law, now it belongs to you. You purchased it. And this is what happens to us as believers. And the Apostle Paul used the Greek word agora, a verb in the past tense, which would be translate bought or purchased. And his readers most likely understood this because it it pictures the ancient slave block. And it would have been a place where this word was used on a regular basis. And this was the Apostle Paul's expanded reminder that a, a Christian, or as Christians, we belong to our own by God. And we see this slave language used throughout the New Testament. Peter puts it this way, speaking of believers in 1 Peter 1.18 and 19, which says, knowing that you were not redeemed, purchased with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood, as of the Lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 
in the Bible says believers have been bought or redeemed, that the Son of God gave His life as a ransom for many, what does it mean? What have Christians been bought from? We've been bought from our bondage. The price has been paid so that we could be freed from our sin. We've been redeemed because sin has a price tag and we could never pay for it on our own. We're spiritually bankrupt when it comes to our own righteousness in and of ourselves. But that price comes. What was the price for such sin and such wickedness? Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church. He says, you were bought at a price, and he's challenging them in their minds to be thinking about the price in which they were paid for. Yes, most people, if not all in the church, are familiar with the short answer. Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sin on the cross is the short answer. And it was an ultimate price. But I want to make sure that we understand the full extent of what it cost. There are two aspects of the cost. There was the finite cost, and then there was the infinite cost. And by finite cost, I mean the the cost that we can comprehend at a human level. God is an infinite being, yet we are finite creatures. And so there are certain aspects of Christ's sacrifice that we can know and understand. And then there are infinite aspects that we cannot know. That it will take all of eternity for us to meditate on to see the reality in greater depths. But we can never, never, never truly fully know it. And the finite cost of Christ's death and resurrection are seen in the Scriptures by the humbled reality that He chose to leave the comforts of heaven He came down and took on flesh as the God-man. He was born of a woman. He lived and worked as a carpenter's son. He had to live, eat, sleep, breathe, just like you and I do. And this reflects the finite reality of the incarnation. To enhance our understanding of the finite reality, I want to read a description of King Henry VIII's entourage that followed this earthly king. And I want you to compare it to what Christ had when he came. Listen to this. King Henry VIII's wardrobe staff numbered 49 servants, with another 15 to look after his beds. There were 115 people on his chapel staff and 579 ushers, grooms, and general servants. Eight trumpeteers and ten minstrels and players were added. And presumably, in case the king came too close to the battle, 31 of the king's physicians, surgeons, and their assistants would be available. When King Henry rode during the day, he was encased in 60 pounds of ornamental steel. And when he retired at night, he was snugly enclosed in a portable, prefabricated timber house with two rooms. The larger one measuring 27 feet by 14 feet, by 18 feet, by 8 feet high, complete with fireplace and chimney. It was painted red on the outside and hung with gold tapestry 
on the inside. Twelve wagons were required to transport this mobile palace. Pates quite the contrast when we consider how the Lord Jesus Christ was treated. And it illuminates for us very well the finite cost that the Lord endured. And certainly, if anyone was worthy of such a following, if anyone was worthy of that type of entourage, it was the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It was. But He came and He said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life. The true King came to give His life as a ransom for many. He was born in a stable because there was no room for him in the motel. He's in a trough where animals ate. And he worked as a carpenter and lived by ordinary means. And all of this was before enduring torturous punishment, before suffer, suffering that agonizing death on the cross. And I think for the most part, this resonates with us as believers, on this aspect, the finite cost. And God wants us to know that. He wants us to see that. May it always astound us, the humiliation and His willingness to leave all His eternal glory. He set aside His divine rights. He set aside His divine privileges. And He became one of us. He took on flesh. And in all points as a man, he was tempted, yet amazingly without sin. Enduring all the scorn, ridicule, persecution, false accusations, mocking, spitting, scourging, beatings, vile hands, punching the perfect Savior right in the face through all this and more, and yet he never sinned. Ever. And then to voluntarily offer himself up as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of hateful people, people who were screaming for his death. And then not only dying, but dying the most humiliating death wicked humans could ever invent. Being publicly executed, hung absolutely naked on the cross. As outrageous as that is, as the tears in our eyes that as we meditate on the reality that He would do this for us, there's another aspect of the cost that we need to see. And it's the infinite cost. And in Matthew chapter 27, it says this, and I'll read it for you. If you want to turn there, you can. Matthew 27, verses 46 to 50. And this is the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. This is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for the first time, ever, in all of existence, from eternity past, since eternity past, the Lord Jesus Christ in that moment had 
Perfect fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. Perfect fellowship. And at that moment, when he was forsaken, God the Father turned his back. And for the first time ever, ever, the Lord Jesus Christ felt alone as he absorbed that wrath for each and every person's sin in this room. People want to argue about no finite man. Jesus had to be God. Nobody could absorb that infinite wrath. It's such a powerful thing to share with people who tried to teach that he was merely a man. J.W.'s got it wrong. And this is a great way to show them. Wow. He absorbed the wrath eternally, right? Infinitely. God was able to do that. And, and a punishment that we would have endured for how long? Forever. That God concentrated that wrath in, in, in that time and zeroed in on his life at that moment is powerful. It is powerful. It's an infinite, infinite price. And we need to consider that. And it relates to what Paul was writing to the Corinthians and it's relevant to us today that there was such an incredible price paid. Yes, there was the finite price. But are you, don't forget the infinite price. Don't forget the price that Christ endured when He had that broken fellowship. It's heartbreaking and we need to breathe that in. How can this be? How can this be? It can't be. But it is. It is. He did that. He did that for this. You know, if you buy something, right? Um, when you, let's say we spend 500 bucks on a car, there's a value associated with the item purchased, right? It's completely different than if you were to spend $50,000 on a car, right? Everyone in the, in the room gets that. There's a, a value with it. Earlier I shared that it would be impossible for us to recall or remember all the things that we've purchased over the course of our life. be impossible. But if I were to ask you, what is the most expensive thing that you have ever bought? I'm convinced that almost everybody in the room can remember what that is. Right? We remember things that are costly. And you know what? So does God. So does God. And here the Apostle Paul is reminding Christians to reflect on the price that was purchased, that was made to purchase each of us. And it will protect your sexual purity when you do. And it will allow us to embrace the command given at the end of our last verse. And it's pretty straightforward. When, when, when we run, when we remember, it sets us up to be faithful and obedient to the last command. That will, it says this, so glorify God in your body. You will be able to do that in terms of, of purity. You will be able to do that. You will glorify God just as a result of being faithful. It really doesn't get any simpler than that. That's exactly what will happen if you prepare yourself to run 
if you prepare yourself to remember and if you prepare yourself to reflect. And all God's people said amen to that. Amen to that. Well, I came across a story from uh, St. Augustine, or Augustine, it's been pronounced either way, but I'll go with Augustine. Or you want me to go with Augustine? I'll go with Augustine. And his confessions, St. Augustine tells us, in his unconverted days, he had allowed himself to become the willing victim of vile and fleshly lusts. He lived his careless life as the pagans of that day and associated with the corrupt, wicked members of society. When he got converted, the great question upon his mind was this, will I ever be able to live according to the Christian standard of holiness? Will I ever be able to keep myself from the vile, sensuous life in which I have lived so long? When he first yielded himself to Christ, he took as his life text Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, that says this, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to to its lusts. For long after his conversion, he did not dare even to go near the part of the city where his godless companions of former days lived. But one day a matter of business called him there, and he was walking along the street when he suddenly saw one of the beautiful yet wicked companions of his folly. The moment her eyes lit upon him, her face was illuminated with delight, and she was running with outstretched arms and said, Austin, where have you been for so long? We have missed you. And he turned and gathered up his long philosopher's gown and started to run. It was not a very dignified proceeding for a doctor, a professor of rhetoric, to run up the street with a godless girl running after him. She called to him, Austin, Austin, why do you run? It is only I. He looked back and exclaimed, I run because it is not I. I run because... It is not I. It's no longer I. Augustine understood that as a believer, that in newness of life in Christ, that he was called to sexual purity. He was prepared to run. And I have no doubt that he was also prepared to remember that he was no longer his own. And that he also was prepared to reflect on the high cost that Jesus Christ paid. You know what? By doing so, he left us an amazing example to follow. John MacArthur tells the story of a 16-year-old girl that came to his office who had lived a life and had had so many relationships, inappropriate sexual relationships with, with men that she was thinking about ending her life. And she came in hopelessness and despair. She was 16 years old, but MacArthur says that she looked more 40 than she did 16. He said that he had the distinct privilege to share Christ with her and see the transforming work that took place in her heart. 
This was a girl that didn't want to go on living. This is a girl that came to the end who felt so dirty that she couldn't even look at herself in the mirror. He shared the gospel with her. She got saved, and God worked in her life. And she, at a later point, came to Dr. MacArthur and said these words, this is the first time that I have ever felt clean in years. Wow. Powerful. And that's what the Gospel does for us. It does. No matter where you're at on the spectrum of living your life, whether you don't know Christ and you're living for the things of this world and you're witnessing all the things, many of the things that we even talked about today firsthand, maybe you know Christ and you've been caught up in immorality and been, you've tasted like a dog returning to its vomit, the Gospel is there time and time again for us to be clean. It calls us to the place of purity. And today, today is the day. You guys are getting to know me. I want the very best for Cornerstone. I do. Yeah, I, I, I know that you know that. And that encourages me greatly. And for us to thrive as a church and for us to grow, we have to be a pure church. Not even a hint. Not even a hint. And what's that take? It takes accountability. It takes linking arms with our fellow brothers and sisters. It takes care groups to really, and care group leaders, making sure that you're taking care and asking the hard questions, right? Asking things that are related to this area. This isn't an attempt for somebody to get into your business. When we're in Christ, we, we're called to the end of ourself. We're called to each other's business. We are. Not to judge, but to bless, to encourage, to provide accountability. And I'm so thankful. This, is, this was a convicting message, but it was one of great joy. And I hope it's great joy in your heart that God has done this for us, that He has enabled us to flee the things that this world cannot flee, to flee the world wide web that so many people are entangled up, that God in His strength and in His power can give us victory and cut us free from the web that could potentially ensnare you for life and keep you and hold you captive to come back time and time again to the vile degrading things that are there. I rejoice. I rejoice. I hope that this message blesses and encourages you. I hope that as you take some time this week and just even think about the reality of how God's at work in your heart, that you would consider every aspect, right? Because those things, those temptations are going to come. And TV, you know, those lusts, can, can pop up, right? They can, and we have to be prepared to flee. We have to be prepared to run. And by remembering, and by reflecting, it's going to bless us. So.
I hope your hearts were as encouraged as mine was today. And I do want to pray. But I also want to take a moment just to even share with those of you who have, may have never, your, your life, your life is, may not be different than, than the world's. Maybe, maybe it's just saturated with, with worldliness. Maybe you've given no regard to even the, the reality of sexual immorality. Maybe it's just crazy talk from a bald preacher up front. It's like, what is he talking about? Well, we we want to bless you with answers. We want to encourage you. We want to let you know that there's hope in Christ and that that there are no regrets. There are absolutely no regrets when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and we walk with Him. It is indeed fullness of life. It is the sweetness of life in Him. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, we bow our heads after receiving what your word had for us this day. And Lord, we rejoice in the reality of your faithfulness. Our minds continue to be blown away by the reality that you would in your faithfulness provide a way of escape from any and every temptation that we'll ever face over the course of our life. And that wisdom calls us to look for it. And that's with every temptation. But your word calls us specifically as it relates to sexual immorality and sexual temptation to flee, to be prepared to run. And Father, I'll confess, even in my own heart, even with the apathy that I have sometimes, it's easier just to not turn the TV off. It's easier not to turn the station. It's easier just to let things pass, but it's not what you would have for us. It's easier to dismiss maybe even some of the conversations that coworkers or classmates attempt to draw us in, or family gatherings with unsafe family. You provide us with the way of escape. We thank you for the finite cost and the willingness of the Lord Jesus Christ to step down out of heaven to live the life that we could never live. We thank you for the infinite cost and your willingness, Father, to even turn your back on your son. That it cost you dearly as well. May that truth just resonate within us. May it allow our hearts to see that with the incredible price that was paid, that you are zealous for us giving you glory in this area of our life. We thank you for the great privilege of studying your word, we ask that it would continue to have an impact on us as we're spirit-led, as you guide and direct our steps from this day forward. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.